Last summer, when the United States Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, we celebrated a watershed moment in the struggle for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender equality. And as significant as that victory was, the struggle for equal rights, the struggle for simple equality under the law is not yet complete. Even though same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states, 29, a majority of U.S. states, 29 U.S. states lack anti-discrimination laws that include sexual orientation and gender identity, and there is no, yet no federal law protecting access to employment, housing, and public accommodation like hotels or restrooms, which you may have heard a little bit about in the past few months. In the words of one activist, in a lot of places, you can now go to the county clerk, you can get a marriage license, you can get married, and then you can get fired the next week because now you are openly lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Uh, Here in Maryland, a transgender rights law was finally passed in 2014, uh, but work remains to be done in many surrounding states and in the country as a whole to ensure that the rights of, and specifically in regard to transgender, 1.4 million adults living in the United States today who identify as transgender, 1.4 million In particular, there's been a lot of controversy around a North Carolina law passed in March that made it illegal for transgender people to use the public restrooms that match their gender identity. Well, the issue is not only North Carolina. To date, 21 states are suing the federal government uh, over a directive to public schools on bathroom use by transgender students. Uh, Full disclosure, the single best advice I would love to give anyone regarding this debate is to just trust. Just trust that individuals know which restroom is most comfortable and appropriate for them, and that they don't need you to check with them, they don't need your permission, Just, just trust them. Uh, In the wake of these debates, uh, I wanted to take just a little time to reflect this morning on the issue of identity and inclusion. Because here at UUCF, we are certified through what the UUA calls its Welcoming Congregation Program, an intentional process designed to dismantle homophobia and later expanded to include dismantling transphobia. It's significant that back in 2006, when this congregation became an out and proud LGBT welcoming congregation, uh, only Massachusetts had legalized um, gay marriage, at same-sex marriage at that point, which they did in 2004. The next state to do so was California. That didn't come along until summer 2008. It's good to remember and celebrate the times that we as a congregation were on the right side of history and that we were there fairly early in the process as a way of potentially inspiring ourselves when the next hard ethical choice comes along because it always comes along. But even though we've been a welcoming congregation for a full decade now, in our heteronormative culture, uh, there remains ongoing work for us to remain as authentically welcoming as possible, to, to really authentically be in touch and in right relationship with each person's, as our first principle says, inherent worth and dignity. In particular, given all the controversy around transgender rights, I'd like to invite us just to reflect a little bit this morning, particularly on gender identity, gender presentation, and inclusion. 
To briefly address the most basic terminology, I suspect most of you are familiar with the term transgender. uh, and more familiar with transgender than cisgender. Have any of you never heard the word cisgender? I would totally, um, yeah, I would not surprising at all. I've actually said it from the pulpit before, but uh, maybe you weren't here that Sunday. We'll hope that's the reason. Uh, the term transgender adds that Latin prefix trans, meaning on the other side of, to indicate a person whose gender identity or gender expression does not match their biological sex. Cisgender adds the Latin prefix cis, C-I-S, meaning on this side of, indicating a person whose gender identity or gender expression for the most part matches the, the biological sex they were assigned at birth. Speaking for myself, owning that label cisgender, just like owning you know, male, heterosexual, white, you know, owning that label cisgender helps me to resist the all-too-common perception that transgender folks are the ones who deviate from the norm, whatever that norm is, instead of seeing that both cisgender and transgender are two among many legitimate points along a vast continuum that spans the diverse human condition. Along these lines, I'd like to share with you the single most useful tool I have found for understanding and for teaching others how they might better understand all these various identities and how they interrelate of how we human beings can find ourselves in all our diversity. You know, it's represented by that ever-lengthening acronym, LGBTAIQ, you know, it continues on, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual, intersexual, queer, question. Depends on who you talk to, even, as to what any of those uh, letters stand for. Uh, You should have an insert in your order of service labeled not the gingerbread person, but the gender, no, the gingerbread man, right? Instead of the gingerbread man, the genderbread person. So if you'll take out that uh, sheet. You'll find, you may find, as I have, that this chart, it's available for free, just Google it is a helpful teaching tool for yourself, potentially for other people. It's an attempt to playfully visualize gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and sexual attraction. The biggest aha moment for me from this chart was realizing that these four different attributes are each on a different and non-intersecting parallel line. And yes, I realize that parallel lines are by definition non-intersecting. But the... um, the, that any individual might identify at any point. on the, So you might be on the left of one of them, right at the middle on another, on the far right of another, and then center. You, you, anybody can be any combination. And, so, and you can start to see how people, to me it was just helpful to have these four non-intersecting parallel lines to see that people can move to different places on one line, still be the same on others, or it can be any combination. That, for me, was the big aha moment, and I've seen that aha moment happen for other people as I presented this um, gender red person chart. I'm not going to go too much into depth with it to just briefly walk you through it. If we start at the top of the chart, gender identity is in your mind. Inside your head, do you think of yourself, or does this another person think of themselves as more of a woman a man, or somewhere in between. And that can be totally irrespective of who they date, who, how they present themselves. So how do they think of themselves in their mind, your gender identity? Gender expression is that dotted line on the left. How do you present externally? In your clothes and behavior, do you present as masculine, feminine, 
Androgynous or gender neutral. This also can change, right? People who at one point in their life may have only worn dresses all of a sudden find themselves wearing pantsuits or blue jeans. And also to think about the, all these things that society puts on us as far as what, you know, and it's easy, currently easy in our culture to be, if I can say this right, a more masculine female than it is to be a more feminine male, right? That um, a biological woman can wear uh, uh, pants and dress in a suit more easily than um, I might wear a dress. At least so far, it's getting, it's getting easier to present just however you feel like it. Is that really so radical, you know, to just people do what they do? <laughs> like that's... Uh, uh, the third category is attraction. It's in your heart. Are you sexually attracted to men, males, masculinity, women, females, femininity, neither or both? Uh, finally, there's a spectrum regarding biological sex. And it's helpful to remember here in particular that someone who is intersectional, intersexual has a chromosomal genotype or a sexual phenotype. If you're not sure what that is, flashbacks to high school geology. So, right, in your genes or in how you externally present yourself, genotype, genes, phenotype external physical appearance, other than simple XY male or XX female. According to the Intersex Society of North America, if you ask experts at medical centers how often a child is born so noticeably atypical in terms of genitalia that a specialist in sex differentiation is called in, that number is about 1 in 1,500 or 1 in 2,000. So relatively common. Uh, but a lot more people than that are born with subtler forms of sexual anatomy variations, some of which do not show up until later in life. Now, on the other side of your order, order of service is an insert of 10 ways to be more welcoming and inclusive of transgender people. For now, I'll limit myself to highlighting only a few points on this list, but I invite you to reflect further on your own for any potential insights on this list for yourself, for UUCF, or potentially for other uh, organizations or groups that you're a part of. Number one is a good starting point. Avoid making assumptions. Avoid making assumptions about gender identity or sexual orientation. You can avoid a lot of confusion, a lot of unintentional insults, and a lot of potential awkwardness by avoiding assumptions. Skipping to number three, do not assume a trans person wants to only speak about trans issues. Um, uh, you know, speak about trans, wants to speak at all about trans issues, or especially only about trans issues. A related mistake uh, is to you know, rush to introduce um, a new visitor who is transgender to another member of the congregation who is also transgender or who you assume to be transgender. Uh, to risk being frank, uh, and this is, this is just a, really just a general best practice. I am by no means calling out us or um, our congregation, but it happens in groups that it's often made similarly with young people, with people of color, anyone who presents differently than the alleged norm of straight, white, cisgendered, able-bodied males. So you get things like, oh, let me introduce you to our other young person, <laughs> like, or let me introduce you to our other person of color, and it's just like, it's not helpful. <laughs> like it's, uh, it is not. Uh, it is a suboptimal, not best practice. Uh, so basically, uh, treat people as human beings. Right? This is just the general best advice. Uh, and get to know each person as an individual. Let. Uh, that person reveal um, whatever it is about themselves that, uh, you know, also don't assume that someone's white is another whole conversation we could get into. How people identify uh, racially is also quite complex often. 
Uh, two other quick things, uh, you know, in listening to trans activists over the years, uh, one trans activist says that they, um, his uh, two least favorite uh, questions are, one, are you done? So typically meaning surgery or you know, transition or surgeries, to which he typically says, I'm not a Thanksgiving turkey. You know, like, this is a process. This is a journey, you know. Uh, and then second is the, the question, have you had the operation? Well, first of all, it's operations often to achieve. It's none of your business, right? Uh, this particular activist likes to say, well, I had my gallbladder out about three years ago. Um, you know, we could just all be a lot happier and more um, copacetic as a society if just in general, you know, what other people have going on in which bathroom they go to, in their bedroom, below the belt. You know, it's just none of your business unless you plan to be intimately involved with that person. Just in general, right? It's just, it's none of your business. Uh, it's just simple etiquette, right? It's not transgender etiquette. It's just, it's just etiquette, right? So finally, as a way of highlighting how uh, we are all on this ongoing journey of coming to know ourselves and one another better and all still just doing our best to struggle through how to build a beloved community where we all feel our own belovedness and feel authentic belovedness towards other people for who they really are amidst all our diversity and differences, I want to just quickly note that our closing hymn this morning is a beautiful hymn in my judgment, but it actually doesn't follow the best practice in number five on that ten uh, ten point chart it of to use terms that encompass all genders rather than two so for instance saying siblings instead of brothers and sisters for people who don't identify in this sort of gender bifurcated way Uh, the reason is that our gray hymnal was published in 1993 which again to be frank is a point at which the uua had had a feminist awakening but was not fully yet conscious of transgender issues Uh, You'll see a much greater sensitivity probably in the next few years uh, whenever the next major UU hymnal is published. That's every 25 years or so, it's hard to say. For now, I'll leave you with a few thoughts inspired by Leslie Feinberg's uh, book, Trans Liberation Beyond Pink and Blue. The truth that gender is a spectrum that doesn't always match the biological sex that one is assigned at birth is a truth that is as clear to me as every little boy who has been teased for being a sissy and every little girl who has ever been derisively called a tomboy. The need for greater gender freedom and greater gender fluidity is likewise as clear to me as the need to create a world in which no child is ever mocked for their gender expression, whether masculine, feminine, both, or neither. We already live in a world in which the race box is optional or has often been expanded to include many more options. The trans liberation movement challenges us that the gender box should also be optional, eliminated, or divided into many more complex categories. In the silence to follow, I invite you to reflect on how you individually or how we collectively may be called to build a more gender-liberated world. Quick final thoughts. Uh, the first is we recently hosted uh, what's, what we call an OWL training our whole lives here at UCF. Um, it was particularly a training for facilitators of uh, junior high and high school OWL. Our whole lives is our lifespan sexuality curriculum. And we were the two facilitators that were teaching, the teacher of teachers. One was a doctoral candidate in uh, sex ed, and the other one was a, a PhD professor at a college in anatomy and physiology. So they were almost absurdly qualified to be teaching them. 
this. And one of the things I took away, I sort of knew this earlier, but just he drew it in a really, it's, it's on my Instagram if any of you want to see the chart that he drew that I took a picture of. But he just showed in a really sophisticated way that, uh, you, know, when, you know, when the sperm meets the egg, it's all the same number of cells, and then you just add hormones, right? And that, it's the, and that, you, and that it either becomes the boy parts or the girl parts, but there's actually exact correlates for everything. To keep it family-friendly, I will not go into specifics. But uh, my Instagram picture does, you know, with uh, words, not pictures, go into uh, specifics. So if you, but just to know that all the parts and all the pleasures, they're all, they're all there. They're all possible. Uh, so it's, that was interesting just sort of from a sheer biology point, I think, about the gender spectrum that we don't always appreciate. It's also been interesting as so many of my um, friends are parents at this point in our increasingly gender-liberated age to watch them wrestle with, and I think some of you have probably experienced this or, uh, or are experiencing it, of watching them, you know, the whole, it's a boy or it's a girl. They're kind of like, well, biologically, but then it might be more complicated than that, right? And and don't necessarily impose all of your, you know, this pink culture, this blue culture. And of course, that's all more complicated and changes with time too. So like if you go back and look at images of the Virgin Mary from the uh, Christian tradition, what color is she always presented in? Blue, right? That blue used to be a feminine color because it was cooler, and red used to be the a masculine color. It was warmer. Or think about what color is Mary Magdalene presented as? Red, right? What does that say? So she's this masculine, aggressive female. So this, all this color coding is, uh, anyway, it's subtle. It's been with us, but it also changes. It's also, there's so many ways. Many of you have heard me say about racism before that racism is real the way that Wednesday is real. And it's also a social construction, the way that Wednesday is a social construction, right? Because 99% of us are, we are 99.9% plus the same on the DNA level. And we've just chosen to uh, build this huge racial edifice on top of skin color, melanin. And it's the same with gender, that we've taken this. It is a social construction in many ways. Now, our proclivities to do certain things that have been gendered may be more genetic to us. But, you know, just study just the barest introduction to anthropology, and you will see how gender is a social construction that changes from society to society, which means we can change it, right? We don't have to limit these things. I mean, look at the Olympics to see a tremendous example of how much is possible when for genders. So with that being said, uh, continue to think on these things to engage the diversity of the world, and as you continue your journey, continue it with love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace. Last summer, when the United States Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, we celebrated a watershed moment in the struggle for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender equality. And as significant as that victory was, the struggle for equal rights, the struggle for simple equality under the law is not yet complete. Even though same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states, 29, a majority of U.S. states, 29 U.S. states lack anti-discrimination laws that include sexual orientation and gender identity, and there is no, yet no federal law protecting access to employment 
housing and public accommodation like hotels or restrooms, which you may have heard a little bit about in the past few months. In the words of one activist, in a lot of places, you can now go to the county clerk, you can get a marriage license, you can get married, and then you can get fired the next week because now you are openly lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Uh, Here in Maryland, a transgender rights law was finally passed in 2014, uh, but work remains to be done in many surrounding states and in the country as a whole to ensure that the rights of, and specifically in regard to transgender, 1.4 million adults living in the United States today who identify as transgender, 1.4 million In particular, there's been a lot of controversy around a North Carolina law passed in March that made it illegal for transgender people to use the public restrooms that match their gender identity. Well, the issue is not only North Carolina. To date, 21 states are suing the federal government uh, over a directive to public schools on bathroom use by transgender students. Uh, Full disclosure, the single best advice I would love to give anyone regarding this debate is to just trust. Just trust that individuals know which restroom is most comfortable and appropriate for them, and that they don't need you to check with them, they don't need your permission. Just, Just trust them. Uh, In the wake of these debates, uh, I wanted to take just a little time to reflect this morning on the issue of identity and inclusion. Because here at UUCF, we are certified through what the UUA calls its Welcoming Congregation Program, an intentional process designed to dismantle homophobia and later expanded to include dismantling transphobia. It's significant that back in 2006, when this congregation became an out and proud LGBT welcoming congregation, uh, only Massachusetts had legalized um, gay marriage, at, same-sex marriage at that point, which they did in t- 2004. The next state to do so was California. That didn't come along until summer 2008. It's good to remember and celebrate the times that we as a congregation were on the right side of history and that we were there fairly early in the process as a way of potentially inspiring ourselves when the next hard ethical choice comes along because it always comes along. But even though we've been a welcoming congregation for a full decade now, in our heteronormative culture, uh, there remains ongoing work for us to remain as authentically welcoming as possible, to, to really authentically be in touch and in right relationship with each person's, as our first principle says, inherent worth and dignity. In particular, given all the controversy around transgender rights, I'd like to invite us just to reflect a little bit this morning, particularly on gender identity, gender presentation, and inclusion. To briefly address the most basic terminology, I suspect most of you are familiar with the term transgender, uh, uh, and more familiar with transgender than cisgender. Have any of you never heard the word cisgender? I would totally, um, yeah, I would, not surprising at all. I've actually said it from the pulpit before, but uh, maybe you weren't here that Sunday. We'll hope that's the reason. Uh, the term transgender adds that Latin prefix trans, meaning on the other side of, to indicate a person whose gender identity or gender expression does not match their biological sex. Cisgender adds the Latin prefix cis, C-I-S, meaning on this side of, indicating a person whose gender identity or gender expression for the most part matches the, the biological sex they were assigned at birth. 
Speaking for myself, owning that label cisgender, just like owning you know, male, heterosexual, white, you know, owning that label cisgender helps me to resist the all-too-common perception that transgender folks are the ones who deviate from the norm, whatever that norm is, instead of seeing that both cisgender and transgender are two among many legitimate points along a vast continuum that spans the diverse human condition. Along these lines, I'd like to share with you the single most useful tool I have found for understanding and for teaching others how they might better understand all these various identities and how they interrelate of how we human beings can find ourselves in all our diversity. You know, it's represented by that ever-lengthening acronym, LGBTAIQ, you know, it continues on. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual, intersexual, queer, question. Depends on who you talk to, even, as to what any of those uh, letters stand for. Uh, You should have an insert in your order of service labeled, not the gingerbread person, but the the gingerbread man, right? Instead of the gingerbread man, the genderbread person. So if you'll take out that uh, sheet. You may find, as I have, that this chart, it's available for free, just Google it. It's a helpful teaching tool for yourself, potentially for other people. It's an attempt to playfully visualize gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and sexual attraction. The biggest aha moment for me from this chart was realizing that these four different attributes are each on a different and non-intersecting parallel line. And yes, I realize that parallel lines are by definition non-intersecting. But the... um, the, that any individual might identify at any point. on the, So you might be on the left of one of them, right at the middle on another, on the far right of another, and then center. You, you, anybody can be any combination. And, so, and you can start to see how people, to me it was just helpful to have these four non-intersecting parallel lines to see that people can move to different places on one line, still be the same on others, or it can be any combination. That, for me, was the big aha moment, and I've seen that aha moment happen for other people as I presented this um, gender red person chart. I'm not going to go too much into depth with it to just briefly walk you through it. If we start at the top of the chart, gender identity is in your mind. Inside your head, do you think of yourself, or does another person think of themselves as more of a woman a man, or somewhere in between. And that can be totally irrespective of who they date, who, how they present themselves. So how do they think of themselves in their mind, your gender identity? Gender expression is that dotted line on the left. How do you present externally? In your clothes and behavior, do you present as masculine, feminine, androgynous or gender neutral. This also can change, right? People who at one point in their life may have only worn dresses, all of a sudden find themselves wearing pantsuits or blue jeans. And also to think about the, all these things that society puts on us as far as what, you know, and it's easy, currently easy in our culture to be, if I can say this right, a more masculine female than it is to be a more feminine male, right? That, um, uh, biological woman can wear uh, uh, pants and dress in a suit more easily than um, I might wear a dress. At least so far, it's getting, it's getting easier to present just however you feel like it. Is that really so radical, you know, to just people do what they do? <laughs> like that's, uh, uh, the third category is attraction. It's in your heart. Are you sexually attracted to men, males, masculinity, women, females, femininity, neither or both? 
Uh, finally, there's a spectrum regarding biological sex. And it's helpful to remember here in particular that someone who is intersectional, intersexual has a chromosomal genotype or a sexual phenotype. If you're not sure what that is, flashbacks to high school geology. So, right, in your genes or in how you externally present yourself, genotype, genes, phenotype, external physical appearance, other than simple XY male or XX female. According to the Intersex Society of North America, if you ask experts at medical centers how often a child is born so noticeably atypical in terms of genitalia that a specialist in sex differentiation is called in, that number is about 1 in 1,500 or 1 in 2,000. So relatively common. Uh, but a lot more people than that are born with subtler forms of sexual anatomy variations, some of which do not show up until later in life. Now, on the other side of your order, order of service is an insert of 10 ways to be more welcoming and inclusive of transgender people. For now, I'll limit myself to highlighting only a few points on this list, but I invite you to reflect further on your own for any potential insights on this list for yourself, for UUCF, or potentially for other uh, organizations or groups that you're a part of. Number one is a good starting point. Avoid making assumptions. Avoid making assumptions about gender identity or sexual orientation. You can avoid a lot of confusion, a lot of unintentional insults, and a lot of potential awkwardness by avoiding assumptions. Skipping to number three, do not assume a trans person wants to only speak about trans issues. Um, uh, you know, speak about trans, wants to speak at all about trans issues, or especially only about trans issues. A related mistake uh, is to you know, rush to introduce um, a new visitor who is transgender to another member of the congregation who is also transgender or who you assume to be transgender. Uh, to risk being frank, uh, and this is, this is just a, really just a general best practice. I am by no means calling out us or um, our congregation, but it happens in groups that it's often made similarly with young people, with people of color, anyone who presents differently than the alleged norm of straight, white, cisgendered, able-bodied males. So you get things like, oh, let me introduce you to our other young person, <laughs> like, or let me introduce you to our other person of color, and it's just like, it's not helpful. <laughs> like it's, uh, it is not. Uh, it is a suboptimal, not best practice. Uh, so basically, uh, treat people as human beings. Right? Is just the general best advice. Uh, and get to know each person as an individual. Let. Uh, that person reveal um, whatever it is about themselves that, uh, you know, also don't assume that someone's white is another whole conversation we could get into. How people identify uh, racially is also quite complex often. Uh, two other quick things, uh, you know, in listening to trans activists over the years, uh, one trans activist says that they, um, his uh, two least favorite uh, questions are, one, are you done? So typically meaning surgery or transition or surgeries to which he typically says, I'm not a Thanksgiving turkey, you know, like this is a process. This is a journey, you know. Uh, and then second is the, the question, have you had the operation? Well, first of all, it's operations often to which he, it's none of your business, right? Uh, this particular activist likes to say, well, I had my gallbladder out about three years ago. Um, you know, we could just all be a lot happier and more um, copacetic as a society if just in general, you know, what other people have going on and which bathroom they go to in their bedroom, below the belt. You know, it's just none of your business unless you plan to be intimately involved with that person, just in general, right? It's just 
It's none of your business. Uh, it's just simple etiquette, right? It's not transgender etiquette. It's just, it's just etiquette, right? So finally, as a way of highlighting how uh, we are all on this ongoing journey of coming to know ourselves and one another better and all still just doing our best to struggle through how to build a beloved community where we all feel our own belovedness and feel authentic belovedness towards other people for who they really are amidst all our diversity and differences, I want to just quickly note that our closing hymn this morning is a beautiful hymn in my judgment, but it actually doesn't follow the best practice in number five on that uh, that 10.5 point chart it of to use terms that encompass all genders rather than two so for instance saying siblings instead of brothers and sisters for people who don't identify in this sort of bi- gender bifurcated way uh, the reason is that our gray hymnal was published in 1993 which again to be frank is a point at which the uua had had a feminist awakening but was not fully yet conscious of transgender issues Uh, You'll see a much greater sensitivity probably in the next few years uh, whenever the next major UU hymnal is published. That's every 25 years or so, it's hard to say. For now, I'll leave you with a few thoughts inspired by Leslie Feinberg's uh, book, Trans Liberation Beyond Pink and Blue. The truth that gender is a spectrum that doesn't always match the biological sex that one is assigned at birth is a truth that is as clear to me as every little boy who has been teased for being a sissy and every little girl who has ever been derisively called a tomboy. The need for greater gender freedom and greater gender fluidity is likewise as clear to me as the need to create a world in which no child is ever mocked for their gender expression, whether masculine, feminine, both, or neither. We already live in a world in which the race box is optional or has often been expanded to include many more options. The trans liberation movement challenges us that the gender box should also be optional, eliminated, or divided into many more complex categories. In the silence to follow, I invite you to reflect on how you individually or how we collectively may be called to build a more gender-liberated world. Hello everyone, Um, sorry if this seems a little cobbled together, I had a surprise decoupling from my family yesterday, so um, that is is weighing on me a little bit, but I'm just going to launch right into it. Um, This is in three sections, uh, so before, during, and uh, post-transition, 
Um, obviously, the last section is the, la the shortest because I'm still writing it, I guess. <laughs> so, okay, here I am. <laughs> Assigned male at birth. Like most of us, my body became objectified and gendered. My anatomy and behaviors were coded and categorized before I could even speak my first words. This would set the stage for the next 21 years of my life where I would be expected to perform masculinity and issued for interests that leaked out of the clearly marked boundaries of boy and manhood. I cannot pretend I wasn't handed a privileged position, as people interpreted my body as male. However, I was, as I would find out, that comes with the bonus of the stigma of perversion for um, practicing gendered self-care and having preferences that are traditionally gendered feminine. The first time I invested in my gender was in grade five, the ever-anticipated career day. I spent a good sum of my play money to have my nails painted by the girls from the class next door, and boy, I was thrilled with that. Um, I beamed at my flecked blue tips, so I wanted to show, uh, show it to my family like any kid would do. So after school, I came home loud and proud, and imagine my surprise when I was told that, well, I was an embarrassment to myself, and what would people think, and that my friends would laugh at me, and for what? A little bit of blue polish on my nails. So... As it turns out, my family was the only ones who actually cared about that. Um, but their legacy of reinforcing gender was definitely far from over. Uh, forced haircuts, verbalized disgust at dressing in traditionally feminine clothing, uh, and nightly verbal abuse were, uh, for anything that was interpreted as sexual deviancy plagued my years as a minor. It's really hard to not internalize that. So I guess I was really lucky to have friends who treated me like I was a human in high school. They uh, listened to me when I said I wished I was a woman, and they didn't hate me for buying women's clothes uh, with them on the regular, but my idea, their idea of my self-expression had kind of departed from normalcy in their minds. Um, they had internalized transphobia, and so it reinforced my ideas of who I was, a misfit who could only really express myself through deviant behavior. So those clothes that I bought ended up in a shoebox hidden under my bed. Um... College in the year of hell, so this is when I was uh, trying to figure it out. From the first moment of properly exploring gender identity, I knew. I knew from the first image of a happy trans person living in their new body. It all happened when I stumbled onto a popular trans, Im trans image board, trans timelines. I found myself exploring people's timelines, uh, which are images of before, during, and after their medical transition. The thing I noticed is that they gained a smile on their face the most. Um... So stumbling onto those posts kind of rocked my world. Uh, no longer were trans people the vain, scary, and perverse people I'd kind of been grown up to, uh, told they were. Suddenly those thoughts I had stuffed beneath my surface uh, weren't a perversion, and they weren't unnatural. They just might be valid. So finding that out, I still kept my thoughts buried for a few months while I regrouped, um, looking up competing opinions. I looked externally to figure out what I was. Some people said I was brave, and some people said I was beautiful, but the loudest voices said I was a pervert and a monster. That was really hard to come to terms with. So I same, slowly kind of came out to my closest friends and my partner at the time, uh, and they were all as supportive as they possibly could be. Uh, still, for the next year of that life, uh, or my life, including my semester abroad in London, I kind of fell apart. Suicide was a daily consideration. I frequented support forums, uh, illegal online pharmacies, self-medication guides, and even a hospital once uh, to anyone considering going abroad. That's, those aren't the uh, international experiences you want, um, so I don't, don't recommend any of that. 
I spent my time abroad having the thrills of the international life and the crisis of living in a body that was not my own. When I got back to this country, uh, the, worst, the worst thing happened for me at the time. Uh, my partner kind of ended our codependent relationship at that point. Um, it was necessary, but it pushed me into a bit of a depressive spiral. But luckily I found a therapist who loved me if I was, as if I was her own child and gave me sliding scale fees to uh, work with a paltry work-study income. Um, she was a, a second-wave lesbian feminist who just radiates compassion, and I still see her to this day. Um, I began medical transition in October of 2015, and I started off low-dose up until this February because I really wasn't sure what I wanted. I just was sure that I wanted something to change. Um, I felt more comfortable in my body every single day, but I, I could really only be open to my friends about it, um, which is it's kind of hard to live two lives, as one can imagine. Um, so that, that month that I started Transition, a popular trans author and storyteller came to my school to perform some excerpts from their books. Ivan Coyote, uh, that's a name I'll never, ever forget. I'd love to read out a letter I uh, wrote to Ivan right now. I haven't sent it yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> hey, Ivan, look, I, I don't know if you remember me. I mean, I bet you meet a lot of trans kids on tour. But I just want to thank you, you know? You saved me. You gave us all the gift of your time and your stories in that small college basement, and as I compressed my tall frame in the middle of those tiny rolls of folding chairs, I lost all composure. I think I kept the noise down. I, I really hope so. But I will never forget the emptying heave of that cry. I'm sorry if it was embarrassing or even worse, distracting. You kept looking me in the eyes, and I felt terrible about being such a wreck, to be sure. But when you butted up against gender in your stories... There was nobody else in that room. You were talking to me. You told me that I wasn't the only one out there. My stomach was twisting in knots and I couldn't stop it. God help me, I tried. But I needed to be there. And you knew that. You could have asked me to leave at any time. You could have said anything you needed to. And yet, and yet, I came to apologize after the show was finished. I didn't really know where to begin. And the moment I faced you, I was met with your hurting, understanding eyes. You didn't tell me that my crying was annoying or distracting, and you didn't pity me. You didn't do what I would have done either. You didn't ignore it. You told me in your tender voice that my tears were good, and that seeing them almost made you cry on stage. Now, I remember, I remember you had just gotten your top surgery. Your chest was delicate and still tender to the lightest touch. I will always remember that detail because it made your next move such a surprise. You asked if you could hug me. You list, listened to a sputtered life story with open ears and then you told me it would be an honor to hug me. And as I started crying again, tears spilling onto the rigid angular button-up that suffocated my form, you wrapped your arms around me and in a half whisper you said it. Don't let the world make you hard. You autographed that with your contact information in the book you signed for me and told me to reach out if I ever needed anything. I wanted to wait until the right time to send you this message. I wanted what I said to be important, and I don't know that this is the right moment, but what the hell, I need to tell you something after all this time. I don't know what I did to deserve your love, but I've been sure ever since that even if I wasn't okay, I'd be okay, and that it was okay for me to want this. It was okay for me to be me. Thank you so much. You helped me make my body my own. About eight months ago, I met some of my best friends who kind of come at gender, gender from all walks of life. 
Um, this is post-letter, <laughs> of course. But um, th they've been a really formative influence in who I am today. They took care of me and reassured me and helped me back on my feet. So now I'm out and I'm resuming life as normal. The rest of my story I'm kind of writing day to day and I'm just so excited to be here and to be reintroducing myself to communities where I'd kind of run away from. Um, so I wouldn't be here without the love of so many people and I just want to thank, um, thank you Ivan, thank you Robin, thank you Deb, thank you Jackie, thank you Nikki, Alexa, Eden, Sando, and Adrian, thank you Corinne, Adam, Ashley, and everyone I reached out to online. If it were not for your love and compassion and wisdom that spilled over from each and every one of you, I wouldn't be here. Thank you. Quick final thoughts. Uh, the first is we recently hosted uh, what's, what we call an OWL training our whole lives here at UCF. Um, it was particularly a training for facilitators of uh, junior high and high school OWL. Our whole lives is our lifespan sexuality curriculum. And we were the two facilitators that were teaching, the teacher of teachers. One was a doctoral candidate in uh, sex ed, and the other one was a, a PhD professor at a college in anatomy and physiology. So they were almost absurdly qualified to be teaching this. And one of the things I took away, I sort of knew this earlier, but just he drew it in a really, it's, it's on my Instagram if any of you want to see the chart that he drew that I took a picture of, but he just showed in a really sophisticated way that, uh, you, know, when, you know, when the sperm meets the egg, it's all the same number of cells, and then you just add hormones, right? And that, it's this, and that, you, and that it either becomes the boy parts or the girl parts, but there's actually exact correlates for everything. To keep it family friendly, I will not go into specifics, but... Um, uh, my Instagram picture does, you know, with uh, words, not pictures, go into uh, specifics. So if you, but just to know that all the parts and all the pleasures, they're all, they're all there, they're all possible. Uh, so it's, that was interesting just sort of from a sheer biology point, I think, about the gender spectrum that we don't always appreciate. It's also been interesting as so many of my um, friends are parents at this point in our increasingly gender-liberated age to watch them wrestle with, and I think some of you have probably experienced this or, uh, or are experiencing it, of watching them, you know, the whole, it's a boy or it's a girl. They're kind of like, well, biologically, but then it might be more complicated than that, right? And, and don't necessarily impose all of your, you know, this pink culture, this blue culture. And of course, that's all more complicated and changes with time too. So like if you go back and look at images of the Virgin Mary from the uh, Christian tradition, what color is she always presented in? Blue, right? The blue used to be a feminine color because it was cooler, and red used to be the a masculine color. It was warmer. Or think about what color is Mary Magdalene presented as? Red, right? What does that say? So she's this masculine, aggressive female. So this, all this color coding is, uh, anyway, it's subtle. It's been with us, but it also changes. It's also, there's so many ways. Many of you have heard me say about racism before that racism is real the way that Wednesday is real. And it's also a social construction, the way that Wednesday is a social construction, right? Because 99% of us are, we are 99.9% .9 plus the same on the DNA level. And we've just chosen to uh, build this huge racial edifice on top of skin color, melanin. And this, it's the same with gender, that we've taken this. It is a social construction in many ways. Now, our proclivities 
to do certain things that have been gendered may be more genetic to us. But you know, just study just the barest introduction to anthropology, and you will see how gender is a social construction that changes from society to society, which means we can change it, right? We don't have to limit these things. I mean, look at the Olympics to see a tremendous example of how much is possible when four genders. So with that being said, uh, continue to think on these things to engage the diversity of the world. And as you continue your journey, continue it with love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace. Hello, everyone. Um, Sorry if this seems a little cobbled together. I had a surprise decoupling from my family yesterday. So um, that is... That is weighing on me a little bit, but I'm just going to launch right into it. Um, this is in three sections. Thankful, uh, so before, during, and uh, post-transition. Um, obviously, the last section is the, la- the shortest because I'm still writing it, I guess. <laughs> so, okay, here I am. <laughs> Assigned male at birth. Like most of us, my body became objectified and gendered. My anatomy and behaviors were coded and categorized before I could even speak my first words. This would set the stage for the next 21 years of my life where I would be expected to perform masculinity and issued for interests that leaked out of the clearly marked boundaries of boy and manhood. I cannot pretend I wasn't handed a privileged position, as people interpreted my body as male. However, as I would find out, that comes with the bonus of the stigma of perversion for um, practicing gendered self-care and having preferences that are traditionally gendered feminine. The first time I invested in my gender was in grade 5, the ever-anticipated career day. I spent a good sum of my play money to have my nails painted by the girls from the class next door, and boy, I was thrilled with that. Um, I beamed at my flecked blue tips, so I wanted to show, uh, show it to my family like any kid would do. So after school, I came home loud and proud, and imagine my surprise when I was told that, well, I was an embarrassment to myself, and what would people think, and that my friends would laugh at me, and for what? A little bit of blue polish on my nails. So... As it turns out, my family was the only ones who actually cared about that. Um, But their legacy of reinforcing gender was definitely far from over. Uh, Forced haircuts, verbalized disgust at dressing in traditionally feminine clothing, uh, and nightly verbal abuse were, uh, for anything that was interpreted as sexual deviancy, plagued my years as a minor. It's really hard to not internalize that. So I guess I was really lucky to have friends who treated me like I was a human in high school. They uh, listened to me when I said I wished I was a woman, and they didn't hate me for buying women's clothes uh, with them on the regular, but my idea, their idea of my self-expression had kind of departed from normalcy in their minds. Um, they had internalized transphobia, and so it reinforced my ideas of who I was, a misfit who could only really express myself through deviant behavior. So those clothes that I bought ended up in a shoebox hidden under my bed. Um... College in the year of hell, so this is when I was uh, trying to figure it out. From the first moment of properly exploring gender identity, I knew. I knew from the first image of a happy trans person living in their new body. It all happened when I stumbled onto a popular trans image board, trans timelines. I found myself exploring people's timelines, uh, which are images of before, during, and after their medical transition. The thing I noticed is that they gained a smile on their face the most. 
Um, so stumbling onto those posts kind of rocked my world. Uh, no longer were trans people the vain, scary, and perverse people I'd kind of been grown up to, uh, told they were. Suddenly those thoughts I had stuffed beneath my surface uh, weren't a perversion and they weren't unnatural. They just might be valid. So finding that out, I still kept my thoughts buried for a few months while I regrouped, um, looking up competing opinions. I looked externally to figure out what I was. Some people said I was brave, and some people said I was beautiful, but the loudest voices said I was a pervert and a monster. That was really hard to come to terms with. So I slowly kind of came out to my closest friends and my partner at the time, uh, and they were all as supportive as they possibly could be. Uh, still, for the next year of that life, uh, or my life, including my semester abroad in London, I kind of fell apart. Suicide was a daily consideration. I frequented support forums, uh, illegal online pharmacies, self-medication guides, and even a hospital once uh, to anyone considering going abroad. That's, those aren't the uh, international experiences you want, um, so I don't, don't recommend any of that. I spent my time abroad having the thrills of the international life and the crisis of living in a body that was not my own. When I got back to this country, uh, the, worst, the worst thing happened for me at the time. Uh, my partner kind of ended our codependent relationship at that point. Um, it was necessary, but it pushed me into a bit of a depressive spiral. But luckily I found a therapist who loved me if I was, as if I was her own child and gave me sliding scale fees to uh, work with a paltry work-study income. Um, she was a, a second wave lesbian feminist who just radiates compassion and I still see her to this day. Um, I began medical transition in October of 2015 and I started off low dose up until this February because I really wasn't sure what I wanted. I just was sure that I wanted something to change. Um, I felt more comfortable in my body every single day but I, I could really only be open to my friends about it. Um, which is, It's kind of hard to live two lives as one can imagine. Um, so that, that month that I started Transition, a popular trans author and storyteller came to my school to perform some excerpts from their books. Ivan Coyote, uh, that's a name I'll never, ever forget. I'd love to read out a letter I uh, wrote to Ivan right now. I haven't sent it yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> hey, Ivan, look, I, I don't know if you remember me. I mean, I bet you meet a lot of trans kids on tour. But I just want to thank you, you know? You saved me. You gave us all the gift of your time and your stories in that small college basement, and as I compressed my tall frame in the middle of those tiny rolls of folding chairs, I lost all composure. I think I kept the noise down. I, I really hope so. But I will never forget the emptying heave of that cry. I'm sorry if it was embarrassing, or even worse, distracting. You kept looking me in the eyes, and I felt terrible about being such a wreck, to be sure. But when you butted up against gender in your stories, there was nobody else in that room. You were talking to me. You told me that I wasn't the only one out there. My stomach was twisting in knots and I couldn't stop it. God help me, I tried. But I needed to be there. And you knew that. You could have asked me to leave at any time. You could have said anything you needed to. And yet, and yet, I came to apologize after the show was finished. I didn't really know where to begin. And the moment I faced you, I was met with your hurting, understanding eyes. You didn't tell me that my crying was annoying or distracting, and you didn't pity me. You didn't do what I would have done either. You didn't ignore it. You told me in your tender voice that my tears were good, and that seeing them almost made you cry on stage. Now, I remember, I remember you had just gotten your top surgery. 
Your chest was delicate and still tender to the lightest touch. I will always remember that detail because it made your next move such a surprise. You asked if you could hug me. You listened to a sputtered life story with open ears, and then you told me it would be an honor to hug me. And as I started crying again, tears spilling onto the rigid angular button-up that suffocated my form, you wrapped your arms around me, and in a half-whisper you said it. Don't let the world make you hard. You autographed that with your contact information in the book you signed for me, and told me to reach out if I ever needed anything. I wanted to wait until the right time to send you this message. I wanted what I said to be important, and I don't know that this is the right moment, but what the hell, I need to tell you something after all this time. I don't know what I did to deserve your love, but I've been sure ever since that even if I wasn't okay, I'd be okay, and that it was okay for me to want this. It was okay for me to be me. Thank you so much. You helped me make my body my own. About eight months ago, I met some of my best friends who kind of come at gender, gender from all walks of life. Um, this is post-letter, of course. But um, they've been a really formative influence in who I am today. They took care of me and reassured me and helped me back on my feet. So now I'm out and I'm resuming life as normal. The rest of my story I'm kind of writing day to day, and I'm just so excited to be here and to be reintroducing myself to communities where I'd kind of run away from. Um, so I wouldn't be here without the love of so many people, and I just want to thank, um, thank you Ivan, thank you Robin, thank you Deb, thank you Jackie, thank you Nikki, Alexa, Eden, Sando, and Adrian, thank you Corinne, Adam, Ashley, and everyone I reached out to online. If it were not for your love and compassion and wisdom that spilled over from each and every one of you, I wouldn't be here. Thank you.